It's November 1988, and Anitria Washington is on her way to a friend's house for a party. As she walks along the South Central streets, a man in an orange Ford Pinto pulls up beside her and offers to give her a ride. Anitria, being the sweet street smart girl that she is, decides that she doesn't want to accept a ride from a stranger, but the man insists. He even goes so far as to say, that's what's wrong with you black women. You think you're all that. He was persistent, and Anitria, not feeling like he was a threat, felt that she could agree to get in the car, and away they went. Anitria remembers being impressed by the car's interior. It was all white with a white diamond patterned upholstery, and a ping-pong-sized marble ball was put and pimped out where the gear shift was. When she mentioned the party, the guy invited himself to the party, and Anitra replied that he was welcome to come. He then said he needed to briefly stop at his uncle's house, to which Anitria also agreed. They wound through residential neighborhoods and roads, ending up on a street that Anitria doesn't remember the name of. She remembers that the stranger was still very polite, and he parked outside a very nondescript mustard-colored house that was partly obscured by hedges, got out, and he walked into the house and talked to someone inside for about 10 minutes. Anitria starts to get impatient, but she doesn't get out the car, and very shortly after, the man comes back and gets in the car. They begin to argue as they're driving away from the house, as Anitria is annoyed that it's taken this long to get to her friend's party when she could have been there by now if she'd have just walked if she just walked. At this point, the man takes out a handgun and shoots Anitria in the chest as they drive through the residential neighborhoods. Anitria passes out for blood loss, and while she does, this man proceeds to rape and torture her, and then she's awakened by a flash in her face as the man takes a picture of her as she sat in his passenger seat, bleeding from her chest. Anitria begged him to take her to the hospital, and he flat out refused. Her only option was to open the car door handle and fall out of the car, and the man sped away and left Anitria for dead. But something miraculous happened. Anitria didn't die. She lived. She was taken to the hospital, where after she came out of surgery, she was able to sit with police and help them put together a composite sketch of the man who had done this to her. Upon taking the bullet from her body and using it for evidence, police were shocked and horrified to find out that the bullet that had been used to shoot Anitria could be linked to seven murders of Black women in South Central Los Angeles. You are listening to the Murder V Rope podcast, and I'm your host, V. Lonnie Franklin Jr. was described by his neighbors and friends as being a a great guy with a great temperament who liked to work on cars in his driveway and was always affable and kind and very chatty with his neighbors. None of them knew that he was the monster that had terrorized black women starting in the early 80s, well into the 2000s, all through South Central L.A. Franklin earned the moniker the Grim Sleeper because just as quickly as seven bodies piled up, he stopped killing and went on hiatus for 13, almost 14 years before striking again. So I guess it's best to start at the beginning. 
Before he started murdering women in South Central, Lonnie Franklin Jr. was in the army, and in 1975, he was stationed in Germany. He and two other soldiers were driving back to base, and they encountered a 17-year-old girl, and they stopped and asked her for directions. Upon getting the directions, they asked the girl if she would like a ride home, and she said yes and agreed and got in the car. Instead of these men driving her home, they took her to an empty field where they gang-raped her, and then Lonnie Franklin Jr. took pictures of her before they drove her back into town and let her go. Now, this girl was brave enough and had the, the wherewithal to pretend to be interested in Franklin so that she could get his phone number. As soon as she was safe, and she was able. She went to the police and reported what had happened. And they used her rep her number that she had gotten from Lonnie Franklin Jr. And had her call him and lure him into a train station. Now she does this. And upon him getting there, the police take him into custody. And he is arrested and summarily discharged from the army for this incident. But what we will see later is this plays a huge role in his M.O. And he really enjoys taking pictures of his victims, which ultimately will be part of his downfall. So we'll fast forward a little bit after he's get got out of the army in 1975. Um. Lonnie Franklin Jr. was employed as a sanitation worker in the Los Angeles area. So he was well acquainted with the alleyways, the dumpsters, the landfills. And this is important because all of his victims were found dumped in places like these. So it speaks to him certainly having a comfort zone where he was comfortable picking up these women and knew the neighborhood well enough to know where he could dump a body or put someone and they'd be found, but he wouldn't be caught while he was putting the body there or disposing of it. These locations also demonstrated how little the Grim Sleeper really thought of these victims. He targeted vulnerable Black women that were all poor, many of whom were addicted to crack or involved in prostitution, because he knew that more than likely they wouldn't have family members that were looking for them or expected to hear from them on a regular basis, which is the case with most drug addicts or people that are in sex, in sex work. So Franklin's very first known victim uh, was 29-year-old Deborah Jackson. Her body was discovered August 10th, 1985. Uh, she had been shot three times in the chest, and then he dumped her in an alleyway. About this time, Franklin meets a woman named Sylvia, and they get married and have two children together. Um, as I said earlier, Franklin was reportedly well-liked. I mean, everyone said that he spent his time working on cars. He was, you know, a, a great member in the community. His very, he's very friendly with his neighbors. Just no one had any idea of the double life this man was leading. Um, they, I don't, I don't think any of them could have guessed that he was a serial killer. So due to the fact that there are high crime rates because of the drug problems that are running rampant in the 80s in South Central Los Angeles. Everyone was convinced that Deborah Jackson's murder was drug-related. Basically, they just chalked it up to some type of violence involving drugs or her or line of work, and they just assumed that that is what got her murdered. And so there was really no 
haste or real urgency to find her killer. Because like many people that were murdered during that time, they just felt like it was an impossibility to find out what happened to her and that no one really cared. But what the police soon find out is that there are going to be many more victims and eventually their unwillingness to connect the dots and really push for justice for these women will be really what causes Lonnie Franklin Jr. to murder without being caught or checked on it. So in 1986, he murders his second victim. It's 34-year-old Henrietta Wright, and her body was found under a discarded mattress again in, in an alleyway. And then the following year in 1987, the bodies of 23-year-old Barbara Ware, 26-year-old Benita Sparks, and 26-year-old Mary Lowe were also discovered. Bernita Sparks' body was especially bad as Lonnie Franklin Jr. stuffed her into a trash bin. Again, this speaks to how little he thought of these women that he discarded her as if she were literal trash. And in 1988, the bodies of 22-year-old Lachir, I'm sorry, I am mispronouncing her name, Lashrika Jefferson and 18-year-old Alicia Monique Alexander were also found. So at this point, he is up to seven victims. He's shot all of them with a 25 caliber handgun. So they are able to get DNA from these women. A swab was taken from the breast of each victim. But at this point, it's again, 1988. DNA technology is in its infancy. So even though they know that these seven murders are connected, they have no way of connecting that DNA to another person. It's essentially like looking for a needle in a haystack. We know what his profile is, but we don't know how to find him and how to match it to anybody else. So at this point, the police know that they have a serial killer at large, but they don't let the public know this. I think that the police's idea was that we won't tell the public and that way we can kind of keep things under wrap. He won't flee. It gives us more time to catch him. But what it also does is allows these women to keep going about their daily life, not knowing that there's somebody out there that is trying to do them harm. And I think if maybe they were told that, hey, there's a serial killer on the loose or somebody that is out there murdering black women who are sex workers, that they would have been a little bit more cautious or careful and we could have and some of their deaths could have been prevented. So this is where we speed back up in time and we talk about Anitria again because she would have been the eighth victim had she not survived. But after this, I think because he probably realized that Anitria did not die, the Grim Sleeper goes into hiatus and that's where the name comes from. He doesn't kill anybody for 14 years. Um, and he's and Jill Stewart, who used to work at LA Weekly, was the managing editor, is quoted as saying he was the longest running serial killer in the United States west of the Mississippi. So it said he had been he had been operating longer than anyone else that was a known serial killer at that time, and then he stopped for you know dozens or years, or or so it looks like he did. To the police, there were no other murders with the same you know mo with the with the same mo of shooting with a twenty five caliber gun. So they assumed that he had, you know, basically quit. And as what happens with most serial killers, they assumed that he was arrested or possibly died or something in his life changed drastically to where he did not have the ability to kill anymore, like he was disabled or something to that effect. But they weren't really sure. These are normally just best guesses. 
Well, all of this goes out of the window because in March 2002, 15-year-old Princess Bartholomew's body was found. She was the youngest victim of the Grim Sleeper. And she's different because this was the first body. This was the first body that he had strangled and beaten, but she wasn't shot. He does the same thing again in July 2003, where the body of 35-year-old Valerie McCorvey is discovered killed in the same manner. She was also beaten and strangled. Both victims were dumped in the alleyways in South Central Los Angeles, just as the other victims before them. But these originally weren't tied to the Grim Sleeper because they assumed because there was no gun that this was a different person. But upon taking DNA samples from them, they were matched to be the same person. The Grim Sleeper had his 11th victim in January 2007. The body of 25-year-old mother, Janicia Peters, was discovered nude and stuffed in a garbage bag in a deserted alleyway. It seemed with Janicia's murder that the Grim Sleeper had converted back to his old ways. She was murdered with a 25 caliber handgun, just as victims 1 through 7 had been. DNA samples were connected were collected from Peter's body and they matched the DNA that was found at the crime scenes of all the other women, of course. So in 2007, Bill Bratton, who was the police commissioner since the early 2000s, set up what would be secretly known as the 800 task force to try and catch the person who had been terrorizing this neighborhood for so long without being brought to justice. No press conference was ever given to let people know that the murder of Janicia Peterson was connected to the murders that were unsolved throughout the 80s. So Christine Pelisek, who I want to give a shout out to because she is an amazing, amazing journalist, who also is the one who gave Lonnie Franklin Jr. the name The Grim Sleeper. She wrote a piece for the LA Weekly where she discusses the fact that Officials weren't really interested in solving these murders until their feet were put to the fire. And she's quoted as saying, nobody with any pool, no homeowners association, no local chamber of commerce was demanding answers to 10 murders by the same guy in a poor section of town. So to this, I say, I think this is the problem with a lot of police work. There are certainly great police officers who come to work and do their job and they want victims to have justice, right? But when you have a pile of bodies in a place where it's the poorest neighborhoods with black people and it's not leading on the news and no one cares that these people are missing or dead, then of course you don't have any incentive to work hard to try to solve these murders. You can just chalk it up to being drug or gang violence and that's fine because there aren't you know, blonde white women being killed or kidnapped. And that's what leads on the news. And Christine shined a light on this. And it was really instrumental in kind of putting the attention and focus on these victims where it belonged so that the police would do their jobs and really start working to get this solved. She basically was also super instrumental in informing the families of victims that there had been a task force because up until this point, it was a secret. Until she broke her story, the victims' families had no idea that the police were still even looking on it, and they had really lost hope. They thought that they would never see justice. The police weren't worried about their loved ones, and they did not know that there was a task force being formed to work on these cases and get them justice. So... 
as this task force is working, a mountain of evidence is forming against the Grim Sleeper, right? At this point, it's 2007. We have DNA. We have a composite sketch that Anitra Washington has given the police. Um, and at this point, DNA is significantly advanced, right? They are starting to have fingerprint databases. They're able to put your information into these databases and see if they come up with a match. Well, they put the DNA profile that they had for the Grim Sleeper into the DNA, into the databases available throughout the state. And what happens is they don't come up with a match. So at this point, they're dead in the water. But they choose to do something that's actually very innovative for the time. They decide that they will look for partial matches in the system and see if something comes back that may be a possible match that looks good. And what they come up with is the DNA of Christopher Franklin, Lonnie Franklin Jr.'s son. His son was put into the database for DNA after being arrested on a felony weapons and drug charge. Now, obviously, they're able to realize that because the same person left their DNA on all of the cases starting back from 1985, that Christopher Franklin can't actually be the Grim Sleeper or the 25 caliber killer, which is also a little no name for this person, for Lonnie Franklin Jr. Obviously, he wasn't alive for some, he wasn't alive for some of these murders. And then for other ones, he was just a kid. So there's no way he committed these murders. But because here's a partial DNA match, they surmise that it would have to be one of his relatives, more than likely his father. And this is when they find Lonnie Franklin Jr. So what happens when you have a partial DNA match and you can't just take that to court and say, this person may be the killer. The DNA is a partial match because as we know about DNA, everyone's DNA is different unless you are an identical twin. But the thing about that is, is that there can be portions of DNA that stretch on for very, very long spaces that are identical to other people. And this is why when we say things like we're more alike than we are different, this is what we mean. Human genomes and DNA the chromosomes and things that we have in our body are very similar across races, across people, across age, across all of those factors. So while your full DNA profile is unique to you, there are parts of it that would be the same for thousands, even millions of people, depending on what you're looking at and what DNA profile or parts of the DNA profile you're able to get. So having a match that said that the person was related to Christopher, but no other evidence wasn't good enough. It wasn't going to cut it in court. It wasn't going to get a conviction. And the police really wanted to get this solved for obvious reasons. So they decide that they're going to run a sting operation against Lonnie Franklin Jr. So they find out that Lonnie, his son, and a few other people are going to a pizza party in downtown LA for, I think, maybe his nephew or grandson. So they put the police in place and the police in the pizza parlor. They have one undercover as a busboy, one stationed at the doors, like a janitor, janitor for the bathrooms, and a few other places. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. As the police waited for Lonnie Franklin Jr. and his family to finish up their birthday celebration at the pizzeria, they couldn't help but wonder... What happens if he's not our guy? But surely, after all this time of investigating and waiting, this is our very best lead. So because the DNA is a partial match, 
fingers crossed, this is the guy. It made the police question if the grim sleeper had ever slept at all. There were so many, there was hours of video. Eventually, the family leaves and one officer who was posing as a busboy collected a fork, two cups, napkins, and a partially eaten slice of pizza. They then rushed these items to the lab and quickly got a result and it confirmed that Lonnie Franklin Jr.'s DNA was on these items and it matched the DNA found on the bodies of 10 murdered women. And on July 7th, 2010, Lonnie Franklin Jr. was arrested and charged with 10 counts of murder. Obviously, there are more than 10 victims, but because they were because they wanted to make sure that they could get justice for the ones they knew about and had the best evidence, those were the 10 he was charged with, which was plenty enough to get him convicted of life in prison or put the needle in his arm for the death penalty. Upon searching his house further, however, police found even more damning evidence. They found thousands of photos of unidentified women, of unidentified women, some bound and unconscious. Mostly all of them were black, ranging in ages from teenagers to middle-aged or mid-40s. Some of these women, they had no idea who they were. They had no way to identify them. And if we're counting 10 bodies that we know of since 1985, but you have all of these pictures of these women who are partially nude or you know, completely nude or unconscious or bound, then you obviously had to still be murdered, murdering these women. So out there are women or bodies that have not been found of victims and their families who still don't have answers about where their loved one is. And it is very possible that they fell victim to the grim sleeper. In 2010, when the photos were found, the police and LAPD released about 180 of the photos and asked for the public's help in identifying these women. L.A. police chief at the time, Charlie Beck, said, We certainly don't believe we are so lucky or so good as to know all of his victims. We need the public's help. So they were asking the public for help in identifying these women that they did not know who they were. Lonnie Franklin was charged with these murders and sentenced to prison or life in prison without the possibility of, the, of parole. There's also an idea that there may have been one male victim. They suspect that Lonnie Franklin Jr. murdered 36-year-old Thomas Steele, and he was a friend of one of the victims who they think maybe Thomas found out the identity of the grim sleeper, and so he had to be killed in order to keep him quiet. But because he wasn't a woman and he didn't have breasts, there was no DNA because there was no rape at the scene. So there was no way for the police to 100% confirm Lonnie Franklin's involvement, and he didn't confess to the murder. After he's convicted, Lonnie Franklin is in jail, and this year in 2020, um, Lonnie Franklin Jr. was found unresponsive in his jail cell in March 2020, um, and he died of unknown causes. They are thinking that it was probably heart failure or something to that extent, but they are currently doing an autopsy and the results have not been released. All I can say is there is probably a special spot in hell for Mr. Franklin, um, and I hope that he is there right now. The takeaway from this is that... The monsters in our life are very real. There are people out there that 
are compelled to do harm, who will do things to you. But not only that, sometimes the police, the people that are tasked to help us are no help at all. And I don't say that to disparage all police officers, but I will say that when it comes to marginalized groups of people, be it sex workers or drug addicts or poor people or black people or brown people or women who are any or all of these things, the police very often glaze over their murders and don't take them seriously. In this country, people do less time for rape than they do for stealing gum from the store in a lot of cases. And so that is the attitude that has been taken when it comes to reporting rapes And when it comes to murder, if you are on the fringes of society, then very often it is looked at as if you are disposable and your life does not mean anything. I am here to say that these Black women's lives meant something. They were mothers and sisters and cousins and aunts, and they were women and they were people. And it does not matter what they did or what drugs they were on and if they were sex workers. They were people who deserved to live and they deserved justice and they deserved it before it took 14, 15, 16, 17 years to track down a killer who was able to dispose of them like they were trash. And with that, that concludes our story today. I hope you enjoyed this first episode. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, anything that you want to talk to me about, if you have any suggestions for someone or a murder that you would like me to cover on a a future episode, don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. You can find me at Murder V Podcast on Twitter. Instagram will also be at Murder V Podcast when I get it up and running. Um, You can also follow me on my personal Twitter, and that's at VJ underscore Burton. And it's the same on my personal Instagram. If you know me, you know that I go by VJ on a few other podcasts, and you can catch me there. I'm on All Docked Up Podcasts with Chris and Penrose. Um, And then I'm on Chopping It Up Q Podcasts with Q, and you know him as well. So shout out to the three of them. You guys have been so instrumental in me starting this podcast. I love you. I cannot wait to have you on as guests. So let me know what you think. Of course, um, rate, subscribe, you know, give me all of your feedback. I'm excited to hear from you. And again, I am excited that you took a chance and press play and allowed me to speak about murder with you. Um, And I look forward to us doing it again next week. So again, I am your host V and this has been Murder V Wrote.